something to say And this something is not unique It's not original in any tongue of speech Matter of fact, it's just an idea you see get played out week by week This idea has been around since the dawn of man It's something that everybody knows Yet it's not reproduced in the palm of the hands It Makes up the very foundation of who I am But for most of us walking on the beach And this something is just another one of those lonely grains of sand Infinite Without form Void Yet this grain of misunderstood sediment Forms the core of all restless existence And as delicate as my attempts are These ideas still find a place amongst the rest With calm and relevance and indifference It's such a bittersweet sight to see He spoke of the something while he led thousands in peaceful walks And Jesus died for the something while his body got nailed to a wondrous cross And the prophet Muhammad gave the something and millions draped in beautiful cloths It's something that can be received by all yet accepted by few It's in the rain as hoping can be seen by the morning dew It's in the weed that you toke and the beer that you brew It's in the eyes of the wicked and the light from the hue It's a tale of many but only told through one view It's humility It's an understanding that our place in this universe is so infinitely small That my war on my neighbors is as meaningless as that grain of sand in the grand scheme of it all That we're looking back on the planet Earth from five billion miles away With just another speck of dust across the vast ocean of decay dedicated to the human spirit. I'm your host, Conan Tanner. Before we get into the episode uh, today, I just wanted to touch base on a couple of topics that I uh, that come up in the episode, and I just wanted to clarify some pieces of information about those topics. Um, I mentioned, at one point I mentioned the Battle of Thermopylae, which is the famous battle that um, that crazy fucked up movie 300 is based on, where all the glistening pectoral muscles and the slow motion blood. Um, that was a real battle. It was the Battle of Thermopylae. Um, it occurred at the Hot Gates in Greece. It was um, during the second Persian invasion of Greece. And uh, basically there was a huge Persian force led by Xerxes that was invading Greece um, and they had to, there was like a pinch point at these hot gates. And um, so the 300 Spartans, they kind of get all the hype and for good reason, the Spartans were, um, 
according to the historians of the time, um, Herodotus, kind of the chief amongst them, were kind of the most fearsome, uh, most effective warriors due to their just kind of over-the-top training techniques and, of course, the Spartan ethic of never surrender, uh, you fight till you die. And they also, it was a rearguard action, um, so they kind of understood that uh, Leonidas, the king of Sparta, understood that they were going to die. So it was um, a desperate battle uh, to the death, and they were just basically trying to stall for as much time as possible. But um, what should be understood is that it wasn't just the 300 Spartans against the Persian army. It was a contingent of Greek city-states. And so it actually, um, there, there ended up being about 20,000 Greeks altogether uh, fighting. So 300 Spartans, but there were 20,000 Greeks total, including um, an elite force of 700 Thespians who were right there shoulder to shoulder with the Spartans and who also fought to the death. And um, Leonidas uh, gave permission to some of the troops if they wanted to retreat to their homes and families when it became apparent. Uh, they had There was a traitor who betrayed the Greek position. Well, the traitor told the Persian um, generals that there was like a hidden path behind the mountains to where they could flank the Greeks because the whole thing was that the first two days of the fighting there was, seemed to be the only this one way through the gates and that's where the Greeks were pinching and that's where they were so effective because the Greek phalanx when the phalanx extends from one side completely to the other side of, of the, the point in which the enemy is going through it's extremely effective because um, it's just like a wall of bronze and pikes, um, so just like brutal. So that's why the first wave is described that they were just cut to ribbons against the Greek phalanx, and then Xerxes sent his elite force, uh, which he termed the immortals, and they didn't have any more success, just because the Greeks were so uh, well-trained and just tough, tough as nails. And um, so anyways, so, but once the Leonidas realized that their position had been flanked and the secret of the, the secret path had been betrayed, he gave permission to um, anyone who wanted to go back to their families, and so a bunch of Greek soldiers did take him up on that offer. So at the bitter end, it was kind of like the, the few of the proud who stood and fought to the death. Um, now, Herodotus, he's the Greek historian who's from like 400 BC, 450 BC, and he, uh, he said that the, the, um, there was over two million Persian soldiers. And so there's this, there's this idea in our culture that it was 300 Spartans versus 2 million Persian soldiers. Um, so in modern times, that estimate has been lowered to around 300,000. I'm not sure why Herodotus, maybe he was just a good storyteller and was kind of exaggerating, but um, so that estimate has been kind of modified to about 300,000. So it's still ridiculous odds, right? Because it's 20,000 Greeks versus 300,000 Persians. And a bunch of those Greeks ended up leaving once they realized things were hopeless. So it really was just um, surrounded on all sides, just these last few dozen Greeks just fighting to the death. And uh, it describes that once their, their weapons broke through use and they were literally just resisting with their hands and their teeth um, until every last Greek had fallen. So that's a little bit more kind of accurate info about the Battle of Thermopylae. Um, changing tack, <laughs> also there's no good segue here, but I also mentioned the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism. And I just wanted to um, kind of 
delve in a little bit more to the the four four noble truths and what they are because I kind of gloss over them and I think it's while many of you have probably heard of the four noble truths and many of you probably know what they are I just think it's it's a good thing to um to refresh and to contemplate on because it's so powerful so the first noble truth is uh called dukkha that's spelled d-u-k-k-h-a and basically that's that's the age-old um, maxim of that life is suffering. Buddha realized that life is suffering. Now, Susan Piver, who, uh, she is an author who wrote the book The Four Noble Truths of Love, where she kind of like correlates the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism to our relationships and how they can apply to our relationships and help us uh, have successful relationships, marriages and whatnot. Um, she mentions that it's really not... Suffering is not the best translation of dukkha. It's more that life is unsatisfying. Rather than life is just suffering, life is unsatisfying. And that's the first noble truth. And I think that's a real important distinction to make. Because um, suffering kind of is just like, I don't know, you fall into, and that's kind of one of the issues I have with Jordan Peterson too from time to time. He's always yapping on about how life is suffering and it's kind of like a little bit of this martyr complex of like, woe is me, oh, life, uh, and I'm going to rise above it. And it kind of gives rise to this sort of like dark mentality of like basically life's a bitch and then you die kind of thing. And I think that that's not a good way to go about your life. And so I really prefer the translation that uh, the first noble truth is that life is unsatisfying. And the reason why life is unsatisfying is the second noble truth, which is the origin of dukkha. And the second noble truth is that we grasp. And because we grasp, we're always grasping for things. And things can never be grasped. So we crave, but we can never achieve, and we desire, but we can never hang on to. Things are always changing and slipping from our grips. We make plans and they fall through. That's the origin of dukkha, the second truth, that we're always grasping for something that is essentially ungraspable. I think that's very uh, critical for our kind of Western consciousness to consider because so much of what is being sold to us on a daily basis, and I include from our teachers in public school as well as the advertisers, is this idea that uh, we can achieve this literally bankable sense of security, that that's somehow that's possible. And really it's like up to us, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and do it. And the fact of the matter is that that's impossible. And it's the origin of dukkha, to believe that we can actually achieve a, a stable, quote-unquote, happiness state where nothing changes where we can bank on you know every day happening the way we want it to that's never going to happen and so that is the origin of dukkha which is the reason why life is unsatisfying the third noble truth is the cessation of dukkha and basically uh the third noble truth states that when we stop grasping then life ceases to become unsatisfying so the third noble truth is that um, when, you, when you stop striving and reaching and, and desiring um, with, with the idea that you're actually going to achieve some sort of stable, permanent result, which is impossible, then you achieve the cessation of dukkha. And that's the third noble truth. And then the fourth noble truth 
is the path to the cessation of dukkha. And this is also referred to as the Noble Eightfold Path. So this is like the way in which we can let go of our grasping in order to... Um, in order for life to no longer be unsatisfying. It's like the nuts and bolts, how we do it. And this, this always gets kind of, in my mind, like when I, especially when I first started practicing and studying Buddhism, this was always kind of referred to like really glibly and like, oh yeah, it's the Noble Eightfold Path. Like, okay, well that doesn't mean anything to me. That doesn't help me at all in terms of my actual uh, real life struggle to <laughs> achieve the cessation of dukkha. Um, so this is like really where the rubber re- meets the road, kind of. And um, so each of these eight paths, eight divisions, it requires like a lifetime of practice. And there's just no other way around that. It requires like a lifetime of contemplation and practice to really figure out what this means. But the eight Buddhist practices in the Noble eight, Eightfold Path are, the first one is Right View which is basically that our actions have consequences and death is not the end and our actions and beliefs have consequences after death. So it kind of um, involves the idea of karma and rebirth and insight. The second noble truth is right resolve or intention. So this is kind of like following the path The third noble truth is right speech, which means no lying, no rude speech, and no telling one person what another says about them. So no gossip. The fourth noble truth is right conduct or action. So that includes no killing or injuring or harming. Uh, That includes like no um, harming of any forms of life, uh, which... I think that you can still hunt for your food and and still be a Buddhist, personally. I don't know. I guess that's, like, sacrilegious because Buddhists are vegetarian. But I think if you're a real skilled hunter and you you hunt to eat and you make, make like, that quick kill, you know, you make sure that your shot is completely accurate. And um, I, I, I don't know. Anyways, that's up to... I guess it's not up to interpretation. I guess I'm kind of, like, interpreting it my own way. But, uh... Right conduct or action, um, being good to one another and not being so greedy and selfish. Number five is right livelihood. And so this is how we make our living. And um, so making our living in a way that is not causing harm to others. Number six is right effort. And so that kind of prevents the arising of quote unquote unwholesome states and generates the wholesome states. And it kind of um, re- relates to being awake and using all of our sense faculties in, in this pursuit of the cessation of dukkha. So that's right effort. Number seven is right mindfulness. So that's being uh, always retaining and being mindful of the teachings and the elements that are conducive to the Buddhist path. And then finally, number eight is right samadhi. And that's meditation. So that uh, the uh, the making sure that you are meditating and meditating in an effective manner 
um, in order for you to kind of like bring to fruition um, your realization of the entire Eightfold Path. It kind of it all starts at the mind. So the final division is right samadhi or right meditation. So that's a little snippet of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path to Awakening. Um, and without further ado, uh, let's go ahead and get into this episode. It's a solo episode today, just me, myself, and I in the studio. So um, take care, much love to everybody, and we'll see you on the other side. Break on through to the other side. yellow rings or yellow with blue rings none of them are strange with socks of lace and beaded censures people are not going to dream of baboons and periwinkles only here and there an old sailor drunk and asleep in his boots catches tigers in red weather that's a poem by Wallace Stevens Disillusionment of 10 o'clock. What's up, beautiful world? Welcome back to another episode. And today is going to be another solo one. So it is what it is. Uh, I've got a bunch of guests lined up and I'm really excited for them. Um, A local chef is going to be on the podcast soon, which I'm super stoked about. Um, Yeah, we're going to, I got uh, my friend, we're going to discuss. Mayan folk tales, and I have an author, a uh, published author coming up. So there's a lot of exciting podcasts on the way, but uh, with the holiday season and everything like that, it's tricky to actually meet up with folks. So I just decided I want to put an episode out. So it's just going to be me, myself, and I today, and you, the listeners. And I want to say sincerely that I'm so thankful for each and every one of you. Um, it's a good time for kind of taking a step back and reflecting and thinking about our lives and the people in our lives and um, just how grateful I am for the people in my lives, just the, the very many facets of friends and family that kind of keeps me afloat in this world of challenges. <laughs> so thank you again for listening, and I very much appreciate each and every one of you And I hope that your heart is open this winter, this winter tide, the new year around the corner, 
and I hope that your third eye is blossoming forth into the sunrise. I just knocked over my water right then when I said that. A little flair for the dramatic. So speaking of sunrises, uh, I have, I've known this for a long time, but I've, I've been reminded of it lately that I am a legitimate sun worshiper. If you asked me what my quote-unquote religion is, I would say I worship the sun, and that's S-U-N. The big shining nuclear blast in the sky that uh, keeps everything afloat and going and gives life and heat and warmth. I worship that. And I, um, some people who I really respect have told me that <clears throat> when you stare at the sun, you don't want to stare at the sun, obviously, when it's up in the sky because you might blind yourself. But if you stare at the sun uh, right as it comes up over the horizon or as it's descending down into the horizon at dusk, if you stare at the sun at those times, um, it, it's actually not damp. And uh, this is not like medical advice, blah, blah, blah. But it, uh, it's not damaging to your eyes, which I can, for me personally, it hasn't damaged my eyes at all, I'm pretty sure. Um, if anything, it feels kind of good. Uh, and it also stimulates the pineal gland, which is, um, we have like a crystal in our forehead that dictates many body processes, including aging and possibly hallucinatory experiences and altered states and such. Uh, possibly it creates DMT. I've heard that theory because we do have DMT in our bodies. But um, So when you stare at the sun at sunrise or, or sunset, um, it stimulates the pineal gland, which makes enough sense to me. And I just, I like the way it feels when I do that. Like I said, I'm, I am a sun worshiper. I know for a fact that I've lived in this uh, valley um, before and I, I've had some very, like, very clear visions of a couple of my past lives. Um, one of my past lives, I lived in this very valley where currently Phoenix is now, where the, um, the Ho'ogam people lived, like, way back in the day. And there's some ruins still around the city, which are really cool. But they were the, they created, really, the canal system. They were the first... Um, individuals to irrigate, use irrigation farming using canals in this valley, the Valley of the Sun. And they used um, the Salt River as the source and they would dig trenches and plant sweet potatoes and corn and built quite an elaborate society. And I just know for a fact that I was just a member nothing special, a farmer. I was just like a peasant farmer participant in that world in one of my past lives, 100%, I'm certain. So I think that I was sun-worshipping then, and I'm sun-worshipping now. And, you know, it's funny, I grew up just outside Chicago, just north of Chicago, and I always used to talk shit about Phoenix, you know, like, because it's, in my mind, I was like, judgmental and it's so um, ecologically irresponsible and the politics are really backwards and and of course when SB 1070 I believe that's the name of it that horrible immigration bill was passed 
that was when Jan Brewer was governor. That was in like 10 years ago. Uh, I mean, that was horrific. So certainly a lot of the criticism that Arizona has received has been warranted. But anyways, I just never would have thought that I would have ended up here. It was, it, you know, I was thinking I would be live in San Francisco or Portland or Seattle. And I did actually live in Portland and Seattle. And I loved the culture and I had a lot of fun, but it just wasn't enough sunshine for me. And um, I, I didn't know how incredibly dependent I am on the sunshine for my overall mood and happiness and well-being and so the issue with Portland and Seattle is there wasn't enough sun and so um, and then some other just like synchronicities occurred and I ended up living in Tempe Arizona for one year 10 years ago I was doing AmeriCorps and now I'm back and I've been in central Phoenix for three years and counting and I just never would have thunk it but Considering that I am a sun worshiper, I think it makes a little bit more sense. And something about the sun is um, I'm a huge believer in the power of solar energy to help us solve our energy crisis. And I think we've just barely kind of nipped the tip of the iceberg with solar power and our solar technology. And um, I actually have a good friend, what's up, Wanji, shout out, in uh, Seattle, actually, who is working in, in the solar industry and uh, educates the youth about um, solar power and installs panels and stuff. And he's going to be on the podcast soon as well. So I'm excited about that. Talk to him all about his, um, his work with solar power in the practical current here and now, which is awesome. So shout out, Wanji. Um, but anyways, I think that... Uh, solar power holds the key to us in, or in terms of weaning ourselves off of fossil fuels. And I have this vision of this type of technology which will be invented, created, dreamed up, um, where sunlight is f- captured and funneled. Like, so a huge, vast area, say uh, 10 square acres, that all of the photons that hit those 10 square acres, if they could all be harvested and funneled into a lar- like a more powerful panel with a larger bank, and just then you'd get some real serious power. Um, I, my vision is that the cities are going to be run on solar. And it's free energy, and there's a reason why human beings have worshiping the sun for so long you know it's uh it's it's intuitive is what it is it's an intuitive thing because you look up at the sky and it's this just magical hot round ball flaming fire power and you feel it on your skin and it feels so good and we need it we need it actually the vitamin d is like a necessary thing for us to live well and obviously uh plants rely 100% on the sunlight, they photosynthesize it and eat it. And in many ways, like our eyes kind of eat the sun too. Like sometimes I I think of our um, pupils as like mini black holes, like we're these universes, we're these galaxies, and we have two black holes in our face (laughs) that help us to uh, quote-unquote see or experience, hallucinate um, this reality tunnel that we're in right now. 
Um, but yeah, they uh, our eyes do they like eat the sunlight and then they they kind of like prism it back out and becomes what we experience as the world. Super trippy. So I just want to take a moment to really sincerely thank the sun. I do believe the sun is a sentient being, and I think it's not a stretch to imagine the sun as a deity, a goddess, or a god. Uh, usually it seems the sun is associated with the more masculine and the moon more feminine. Um, but I think we, we all carry pieces of sun energy and moon energy in us all the time. So thank you, sun. So another thing I've been working on lately with kind of mixed results is I've been trying to rededicate myself to my meditation practice and um, it's difficult. It's really hard just to sit still and follow your breath, even just for five, ten minutes. So difficult. It's really like astounding how difficult it really is and yet how good it feels. And I think for me, like the key word for my meditation practice is just to soften and relax. I guess those are two words. Um, I need to soften, or not need. I, I, uh, that's what holds the key for me, for my success in my practice. Soften into my own body and experience of myself and relax into the sensations, including like the restlessness that almost immediately pops up or the feeling that I need to do this or that or oh I forgot to do this before I sat I should need to do this now and it's it's amazing how busy our minds are and in fairness to ourselves it's kind of a necessary thing in our modern society we have so many personas that we need to embody all the time like in our day-to-day life in order to survive you know to pay the rent pay the bills if we have family even more intense feed the whole family we need to um our minds it makes sense that people's minds are so busy because it's like this high stakes game of resource gathering that is not an easy one to play in our modern world so i don't think it's necessarily through any fault of our own that our minds are so busy and crazy but um they are (laughs) it makes the meditation practice really difficult and my practice is just real basic. I just sit in half lotus. I, I, I can do full lotus, but not comfortably. And my appendages go numb and it's just like, so I do the half lotus. And um, I actually keep my eyes open, um, but I, like, I soften and relax my gaze. And I just focus on a point like three or four feet in front of me. And then I just take nice deep breaths big deep belly breaths and just follow the breath and I always like to imagine the that I'm sitting at the beach and watching the surf come in and out and I imagine that as my breath the exhale and then the inhale when the ocean pulls back and just try to focus on that and um, and that's it <laughs> just focus on my breath breathing in breathing out and then when I inevitably discover that I've been thinking about needing to take out the recycling for the past like five minutes 
then um, don't not to beat myself up about it or let it derail my practice, but just to say thinking and then go back to following the breath. Today's episode of Barbarian Noetics has been sponsored by banks. Banks. In the past, there were castles and drawbridges and moats. Now there are big, tall, shiny buildings that tower over our cities and tell us, fuck off. Banks. Stealing from us, telling us to go fuck ourselves. Banks. Today's episode is also brought to you by t-shirts. They're not tank tops, they're not dress shirts, they're not even long sleeve shirts. They're right there in the middle and they're there for you. T-shirts, there for you. Alright, thank you so much to our sponsors, Banks and T-shirts. Now we're back to our episode of Barbarian Noetics with Conan Tanner. to chant mantras as well um, and I sometimes do that to incorporate some chanting. I really like uh, the Vajrasattva mantra. <clears throat> Om Vajrasattva Samayam Manyupalaya Vajrasattva Senyapatista Dirdome Bhava Sutoshyome Bhava Suposhyome Bhava Niraktome Bhava Sarvasiri Me Prayacha Sarva Karma Sucha Me Sitam Shreya Kuruhum Ha 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 ho Bhagavan Sarva Tathagata Vajra Ma Me Munka Vajri Bhava Mahasamaya Sattva It's the long, long form Vajrasattva mantra, the Buddha of Diamond Light. 
feel very connected to Vajrasattva because when I was working at the um, the Buddhist retreat center, the Tibetan Buddhist retreat center in Northern Cali, I was there for eight months, and I was pouring bronze for these massive statues that this temple was being built, the Chintamani Temple. And um, so I was I would pour the bronze for uh, when I was there during the eight months. We worked on the Maitreya statue and the Vajrasattva statue and the Tara statue and Tara I've always felt like a very uh, intimate connection with so almost so it's so personal that I almost feel like I can't talk about it right now on the, on the podcast but um, that force means a lot to me it's really helped me through some tough times but I also, getting back to Vajrasattva, is I poured the bronze for the entire Vajrasattva statue. And it was built to last a thousand years, pure bronze. And um, it's standing right now in Northern California on the Chintamani Temple. The Vajrasattva will be there for thousands of years. And I poured every single pound of bronze for that statue. And by pour, I mean... Um, uh, you melt it in a, in a crucible, like a, maybe five or six ingots at a time, and you melt them down in this really powerful, crazy crucible heater thing. It's like <laughs> just like so much power. And then uh, for the the Buddha statues, the pieces were quite ornate, and so most of them had to be uh, silica shells. And you can make silica shells a little more detailed than sand shells. Uh, this is where you pour the bronze into, so like the receptacle, the container for the melted bronze, and then it takes the shape of the form. So sand castings work great for more basic forms, but if you want to get the detail, you, you use silica. And um, that's what I did. Poured the bronze, melted the bronze, poured it into the silica shells, and then we'd all help to break it out at the end, because that's a lot of work, because you got to like hit it with a sledgehammer and then you got to go at it with a pneumatic drill and it takes a long time but anyways so that's my meditation practice and that's where I'm at with it and I'm honestly just trying to if I can just do if I can just do it each day even if it's like 45 seconds honestly it's better than not doing it at all and that's kind of where my mind's at like just you know, don't overthink it. Just go, just do it. And if you can only do it for one minute today, then so be it. It's fine. At least you did it. You made that effort. You kind of said to the universe, I'm going to meditate today. I'm going to meditate tomorrow. I'm going to meditate the next day. So. Um, I've been feeling, like, super emotional lately. So... Um, I don't know how much I'm going to talk about today with that, but uh, I've just been like dealing with emotions, deep emotions, uh, mostly kind of like the, I don't know, I've, I've been feeling like uh, kind of like fear of abandonment in some of my relationships, so I don't know what that's all about. And it's hard for me to talk about it because I feel like it's really self-centered and narcissistic for me to talk about it too much on the podcast. Even though I like podcasts where the hosts do talk about their personal emotional experiences. So maybe it'll be like a day-by-day thing. Like I'll 
on days that I feel comfortable talking about it, I'll talk about it. On days that I'm really self-conscious about it, like today, maybe I won't as much. But the meditation definitely helps with these um, super intense emotions that I feel and, like, the sadness. I feel like sadness and depression is, like, it's like a... Um, it's like a shadow form that's always like just just like outside of your sight like it's it's right around the corner in a way like it's I don't know it's my experience it's just it's a real real battle to keep the sadness at bay and when you start to feel the sadness it builds momentum like real quick so it'll just be like a little glimmer of sadness and then all of a sudden it's like you're really like dealing with some intense sadness and I know that um, many people who I respect recommend just like just instead of trying to run away from the sadness to just really go into the sadness and just experience it and I try to do that it gets really overwhelming sometimes (laughs) so sometimes I try to do that and it gets too overwhelming and I just go to the gym instead (laughs) and just like the other day I was really like having a a rough time and I just like went hog wild at at the gym (laughs) just like just lifted as much as I possibly could for quite a long time and then eventually the experience of that kind of like shook me out of my my rut it does work really well that's for sure for shaking you out of ruts and I guess it's definitely a healthier option for coping than a bunch of other options. So I'm still sober. I still haven't touched a drink of alcohol. I have to say that for the first time in a long time, um, I when I was having a super rough day, well, I've been, I kind of had a super rough week. It's been kind of tough. And for the first time in a long time, I passed by the wine section at the health food store, and I was like, oh, it looked... it what it like that feeling of like just the taking the edge off was like so alluring to me and not even for a split second did I think about actually touching a bottle like I'm over that I'm so over alcohol like I can say that with confidence um but I hadn't I hadn't been even like tempted by that feeling that it gives you in a really long time so that kind of showed me I was like oh shit dude (laughs) You are like in you're in murky waters right now, so you got to go uh, lift weights until you mess up your shoulder, which is what I did. <laughs> so, yep, it's um, it's it's getting better for sure. But my whole left arm is like, I think something happened with the tricep. So now when I ride my bike, it like hurts a lot, but it's been getting better. So it's not the end of the world. Um, I'm getting another tattoo soon. Um, my tattoo artist actually wanted to move the date up. It was I was going to get it in February, but it looks like I'm going to get it in January now. And um, I'm going to get it on my chest, and I'm going to get the Finnish word sisu. And uh, in embellished script, I'm going to let my artist do her thing. She's amazing. But um, Sisu is uh, S-I-S-U, and it's a Finnish word from the Finnish people, and it really is kind of like the word for the Finnish people that kind of defines the people and the culture. And I feel super connected with my Finnish roots. And um, 
so Sisu is there's no direct English translation to Sisu so um, it's one of those things that's hard to hard to encapsulate with words I guess but it's I see it as like a spiritual um, force of nature and it represents like there's determination and there's perseverance and then there's that almost magical capacity that we have to go beyond our own limits of perseverance and determination. And that's where Sisu begins. Sisu, Sisu begins outside of the limits of our determination, perseverance. And that's oxymoronical because how can something that we experience exist outside of the limits of our experience? That's why it kind of has like the spiritual aspect to it. But another way of thinking would be like, you know, we have our second wind, we have our third wind, but like the fourth wind, you know, when we really, we have nothing left, but we go on anyways. That's Sisu. And um, it certainly does have like a grim aspect to it. Like it's, you know, um, reminds me sometimes of the Spartan ethic to never surrender, just you fight until you either win or you die and surrender was just not even um on the table for the spartans it, so it made things kind of very like courageous and heroic but also simple for them they they just knew that it didn't matter what was in front of them when the persian army was throwing like some say close to like 80 and 200,000 but the persians threw this huge army of soldiers at the group of 300 spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae. Um, that's, I believe, what made the Spartans... Well, obviously, they were world-class fighters and soldiers. Like Their training is off the chain. But I think what enabled them to pull, that, pull off that um, miracle at Thermopylae is that ethic of they just knew going in that they were going to fight until they died. Surrender was not even in their brain stem... And uh, so anyways, that's kind of like the grim aspect of Sisu, but I, I also see it as a very cheerful thing um, and inspiring and like energy giving and light bringing because it's kind of, um, there's like this intense appreciation for the moment in Sisu as well, because you're fully engaged, like at every moment in your life, you are you are giving like beyond the beyond of your full self when you embody the sisu. So, and I also see it as like a cheerful way to view life is full of challenges and obstacles, and life is hard. Life is difficult. Like there's a reason why the the Buddha realized that like the first noble truth is um, life is suffering, and then we cope with and we transcend our suffering. But the initial thing is like life is suffering. And so that being said, uh, Sisu is, um, it's a spiritual invitation to not just accept it in this kind of like mulish way of like Eeyore, like another day, but really like embrace it and like uh, not like attack it, but take the initiative of each day. And really be like, and each challenge, you know, and be like, yes, all right, this is what I'm here for. 
and that's a really important reminder for me as I do experience the challenges and especially the inner challenges of with your own mind those are the toughies so so yeah everybody those were kind of the topics that I wanted to touch on today and um, I really appreciate you listening to me yammer on and it gives me like a lot of pleasure to, to make these pods and but um, without the listener well no it's I would do it, I would, it this is uh, but the listeners are an in- integral part of the experience so I feel like it's like a energy exchange like I feel the vibes I feel the listeners vibes even while I'm recording it live it's it's like it's very interesting and then I have my own relationship to podcasts as a podcast listener and how much like they inspire me and really like because I know that I'll be able to I get excited because I know that I'll be able to clean the house while I listen to podcasts you know I get like so I'm excited about it and I always like I save my favorite podcast for work and stuff and uh yeah I don't know I love the podcast medium I really I think it's like like what solar energy is to um our sustainable uh energy consumption as a species like podcasting is to our sustainable emotional and mental consumption of of knowledge redefining entertainment into uh learning you know like knowledge expansiveness and that's not to say that you can't appreciate like a goofy comedic podcast 100 percent, i love goofy comedic podcasts but there's something about the medium that um even with goofy comedic podcasts it just can't help but get kind of deep because you're there with the host and you're having this inner experience it's like this dialogue it's strange like obviously you're not conversing with the host but when i listen to a podcast i feel like i'm right there at the table with the host or with the guests or with the interviewers. It's really amazing. And I love how you can do it like before podcasts if you wanted to um, like learn about volcanology, you would have to like read about it. Like either in a in a book or online, you'd have to read about it. And now you can listen to a podcast about it so you can learn about volcanology while you are driving a forklift all day while you're cleaning a house all day while you're doing groceries while you're doing dishes while you're walking the dog like so it's this uh, Jordan Peterson calls it found time and that the podcast is like birthing all of this found time for education and inspiration and so Thank God for that, because that's we need that. We need we need all of that right now as a, as a society, as a as a people. I don't know. I've been um, feeling like really connected, I guess, with like just I feel like the challenges that people experience around the world. Like I feel it in my body, and I don't even I don't really like fuck with the news. But I know what's going on, you know, and I know there's certain places that are experiencing war and conflict, and I feel it in my body. So, like, when I sit down to meditate or when I embrace Sisu, when I cheerfully, you know, attack each day and each challenge and each obstacle and each problem, like, I'm doing that for all of humanity. 
and that goes for everyone out there too like we we do that for when you empower yourself when you forgive yourself when you um embrace yourself and love yourself and feed yourself like healthy food and not just physical but like emotional and and spiritual and intellectual food you are lifting up all of humanity when you do that because we are one we are one legitimately so so every single podcast i have to mention quantum physics once so (laughs) here it is uh according to quantum physics we are literally one because we inhabit this unified field all together so we do feel everything that's happening and i think the more sensitive you get the more pronounced and salient that is that we are connected with everything and so it's just all the more reason i guess to really like take responsibility for your own light and for the for the benefit of all one i i I really like that about uh buddhist prayers is they always say like for the benefit of all beings so like this prayer is for the benefit of all beings which includes the animals and the plants and the insects and you know all of our um the metals like the the wood it's it's all alive so even our electronics are very much alive they got this crazy electricity pulsing through them they're alive as fuck (laughs) so anyways thanks again for listening so much and uh i'm gonna take us out with a mix that i've been listening to and i love it so much um it's by arumi who's a oakland california dj and she's fantastic um and what's this mix called this mix is called spaced out by arumi that's a-r-u-m-i and uh she's a dj and a producer and so if you go to soundcloud soundcloud.com slash arumi with two a's a-a-r-u-m-i She's awesome. So I'm going to go ahead and let her take us out, finish off this episode. Um, I really hope you all feel feel in, inspired to be inspired <laughs> and inspired to inspire others. And Yeah, like I said, may your hearts be open and full and fulfilled and just uh, infinite love to all. All right. Mornings when I think about you Yeah I hit you like what you say In the mornings when I wanna Yeah I hit you like what you say And I can fuck you all the
days I used to
baby, all I need is a little bit, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Get a crackin' in the club when you hear shit. Drop it like it's hot, get to work in it. Damn, baby, all I need is a little bit, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Get a crackin' in the club when you hear shit. Drop it like it's hot, get to work in it. Step up in the club, I'm like, who you with? See you need in the house, yeah, that's my clip. Step up in the club, I'm like, who you with? See you need in the house, yeah.